Sweat and tears, I done put a lot in You at the top, I'ma need the top spot then Pass the rock, half court shots popping Bambino at the plate, I'ma have to call my shot then Breaking news, any league that you watching Pop culture, Mr. Green got him flocking Start a pot, start a pot, start a pot, start a pot then Start a pot, start a pot, start a pot then Man, I just want to give a big shout out to my guy, Stephen Oliver, better known as Spo. He absolutely killed that beat, laid down some absolute bars. He supported me in every way possible since I've started this show. And honestly, he's been supporting me and my dreams since I've been wanting to do any of this. I'm appreciative of him and all my homies that are in my corner and want to see me succeed. My guy Steve has really came through. He came in and gave me a dope logo. He sent me beats. And now he came in and rapped on Vander's beat and gave me an official intro song for my own podcast. He called me, told me to check my email. I downloaded the song and I literally played it on a loop for about two and a half hours. I just kept letting the thing play and I didn't want to turn it off. I just love it. I absolutely love it. And before we get into the show, we're running it back. Blood, sweat, and tears, I done put a lot in. You at the top, I'ma need the top spot then. Pass the rock, half court shots popping. Bambino at the plate, I'ma have to call my shot then. Breaking news, any league that you watching, pop coaching, Mr. Green got him flocking. Start a pot, start a pot, start a pot, start a pot then. Start a pot, start a pot, start a pot then. I appreciate y'all for coming back and tuning in to another episode of the Stir the Pop podcast. This is episode three. And to start off episode three, we are extremely lucky and blessed. And I'm really, really thankful for my guy, a current defensive lineman for the Baltimore Ravens, Jihad Ward. Jihad, I appreciate you for coming on the show, man. How's it going? How you doing, Marshall? What's going on? Going all right, man. What's a day right now in the life of Jihad Ward during this coronavirus time right now? Right now, the goal is, you know, just stay conditioned, get on tip-top shape. You know, um, you know, me dealing with this quarantine, you know, uh, basically just social distancing ourselves. We just got to just find a way. Like, I just ride my bike outside and, you know what I mean, and um, run and jog. And, you know, I had my weights, so I just lift some weights and, you know, Actually, the NFL teams, you know, they gave us some supplies so we can stay fit and, you know, give us the playbook so we could just, even though it's going to be a lot, everything's going to be a lot more difficult, we'll still, like, try to fight ways to get ready for the season if we do have a season. So that's the most of my days of everyday process with this quarantine. Yeah, I just saw that they, the NFL and teams are starting to start up these non-mandatory like Zoom meetings and like online workouts and stuff like that. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's like? Yeah, so right now um, we had the process. Our OTAs are suspended, I believe. So the update is that um, going through the plays and stuff like that, every position, we'll have position meetings. Um, we'll start up with a Zoom app. Um, the Zoom app is you have a member ID. Once you get that member ID, um, everybody is on FaceTime with each other and stuff like that so we can learn the playbook and stuff. We really can't go to the facility right now, so all we have to do is stay in shape. And um, whenever that time comes, we have to study. We'll have um, 
um, mandatory Zoom um, playbook calling, if that makes sense. I got you. So this offseason, you were a free agent, and you decided to return to the Ravens. And you've been a free agent before, but I was just curious, you know, with the coronavirus going on, was it different this time around? Or what was it like just, you know, not being able to meet with teams in person? I mean, it's really, you know, meeting teams in person is just like, you know, just building some chemistry, you know what I mean? Just getting, making yourself more comfortable. It's all about how, how, what makes you feel loose and comfortable. So I'm pretty sure I'm very good at that, you know, Going to, you know, as um, as you've seen me be an Oakland Raider, jump into Indianapolis Colts and the Cowboys and stuff like that. I just want to just try to make myself way into fitting, if that um, explains to you, you know, so. Yeah, and is that is that why you decided to return to the Ravens? Was it just a place where you felt like you really just fit in and were a part of that culture? Yeah, I felt like it was a good fit in, you know. Um, this game was good for me. And as, as everybody can see how I've done, and I feel like um, it's a lot of work to do with my behalf. And, you know, and plus just I'm close to home and I'm not alone, you know, doing it. And my most part about this game is, is it fits me. So I, I think it fits me. So I want to touch on, like you just said, where you're from. But before we do that, I got to ask about last year. And the playoffs. What's just something that you guys can take from that game versus the Titans to where, if you're in a situation similar this upcoming year, you can use it to your guys' benefit. Stay uncomfortable. That was my main goal. Um, is to stay uncomfortable, and um, I realized that um, you know I've been in the playoffs three years. I, yeah, I've been in the, I've been in the playoffs three times of my NFL career, so I already know what it feels like to get knocked off of the playoff, you know, with round, we'll round you in and stuff like that. So my main focus when I was a Raven, you know, don't get too comfortable and stuff like that. You know, at the end of the day, we did what we had to do. They won. They came in to compete. They was ready. We folded. So with that being said, I don't want to, I don't want us to get too comfortable during the season. I just want us to keep, still have that hunger in the, in us, you know what I mean? So, just to answer the question. Yeah. And one more thing before we go to Philly and touch, we can leave the Ravens topic alone. I'm sure a lot of people want to know, what's it like playing and getting to watch a guy like Lamar Jackson, whether it's in practice or when the defense is meeting on the sidelines during a game when the offense is at work? What, what's that like? Oh, it's good. You know, he's always focused. He's always um, hungry. You know what I mean? He knows the game. You know what I mean? And the thing about it is he's still young, so that's what's scary. And, you know, he's still learning the whole process of this NFL experience. So that's even scary once he know the whole situation, what's going on. You know what I mean? He's getting looser, I believe. And, you know what I mean? And long story short, um, people, he realized that everybody's going to talk about him, right? Um, if they hate him or not or they love him or not, he just focused on us. One thing about Lamar is he treat everybody like it's his brothers. He don't be, you know what I mean? I've seen a lot of. Yeah. quarterbacks that are, that are like that in this NFL. He's not like that. He He's a, he's a you rocking with me, I'm rocking with you type of guy. And he always lifts everybody up that's on his team. So, and all we can do is respect him for that. We He knows that we got his back. So, you know, once he feel, once he feel that, the sky's the limit with him. So, Absolutely. 
And like you said, a big part of playing for the Ravens in Baltimore was being close to home, which is Philadelphia for you. If you could just kind of talk me and walk me through what was your childhood in Philadelphia like growing up? What's the area you're like from? And how did you start playing football? Started playing football. Well, I was more of a basketball guy when I was young. I started playing football when I was in ninth grade. And, you know, I'm from North Philadelphia. Um, North Philadelphia is a rough environment. It's a dangerous environment um, as of now. Um, I would say it was kind of a rough area. And basically, if you knew right from wrong, then it was your path. If you want to go the right path or the wrong path. So I was one of them guys where I've seen a lot of negativity throughout my life. And all I want is positive. So. When you're sick of negativity, it's just like you just want to be around positive stuff. So this is why I'm at the stage where I'm at right now. Thank God. You know what I'm saying? Because I could have been in the other route. But, you know, I made my decisions wisely. You know what I mean? Every decision I make is a life decision where I'm from. So with that being said, it's just like, you know, I made a way. I made my own lane. So I'm just blessed to be here. But all I can say about um, Philadelphia is just a rough area. and You just got to find your way. That's awesome. So you said you started playing football in the ninth grade. How, how did that come about? Why so late, and how did it happen? Like you said, you were a basketball guy. but I mean, I always played football when I was a little, little kid. Like, you know I me mean? Having the ball, running, and stuff like that, but I never was in a team. I always played the sport, but I never was on a, a organizational team like Pop Warner or, you know what I mean, like them um, AAU teams. But, you know what I mean? I start taking it serious my ninth grade year. So I always played the sport, but basketball, you know, the East Coast is known for basketball. Yeah. Not to say that, not to say that um, we really don't like football like that, but, you know, I'm a neighborhood type of I'm from the city of Philly where it's like I'm outside every day. We're, when you go outside, people ain't playing football. People playing basketball. You get what I'm saying? So yeah. it's just like, you, you go outside and you see your guys talk about basketball. People talk about football, but there's rarely football fields where I'm from. There's basketball courts on every, like, mostly every, like, three corners that you see. So what do everybody do? What do kids do? They play ball. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, I was just, I was playing ball more than football. Now, it was rarely, you know, I mean, people ain't getting on the grass like that. So I was just like, you know, sometimes we'll play football, but I always loved the sport. I just didn't take it more serious than basketball. And plus, I wasn't tall enough for basketball, and I ain't had no handles like that in basketball. And plus, um, football, I was getting most letters and, you know, full scholarships. So I chose football, you know, because when you're a kid, you got to find out what sports you is. You want to play as many sports you can do. Like me, I did swimming, I did basketball, I did football. Um, I did boxing, you know what I'm saying? But boxing is rare, a sport in high school, you know yeah. what I mean? So with that being said, it's like, that was my top sports. So I was just like, yeah, whatever is going to make me have the most benefit, I'm choosing. So, you know, when I have a kid and stuff like that, I make them play whatever sport they want to do, whatever makes them have the most benefit that come without or with them, choose that sport. Because you're only going to play one sport, so. Yeah, and playing those other sports as a kid, it's going to make you a well-rounded athlete. It's going to improve your hand-eye coordination, every sport. And then on top of that, the rest of the sports can be your hobby. 
you know what I mean? Why you playing? Um, let's say I'm an NFL player. I still play basketball. I still box and stuff. That could be a hobby, you know. You never know. Or you know, when I retire football, I might want to do boxing. You never know. Because a lot of kids in high school feel the pressure to where they need to focus on one sport, but you know, playing other sports that's going to help you out. Yeah, most definitely. Your junior year and your senior year in high school. I mean, to say you started playing organized football in ninth grade year, you were the you were a second team all city selection your junior year, and then all first team all city selection your senior year. So seems like you picked up the sport pretty quickly. Why do you think you were able to do so? It was just talent, you gotcha. know. It was just nothing, nothing but talent back in the day. You know, when you're a kid, kids believe in talent more than work ethic and stuff like that. People, when you're a kid, people don't really worry about the the techniques of the sport and the work ethic that you got to put in. Philly is just nothing but talented players. And as you can see, a lot of people from Philadelphia. Last time I checked, when I was in Philadelphia, it's my 12th grade year. There was like 12 percent of like athletes going to college. And what I mean by the say this is just like, like, that's what I mean by going to school and stuff like that. Like, I was just trying to play the sport. Like, I, I went to JUCO. I, w- I didn't really care about school too much and stuff like that. And that really set a, a, a lesson for me. Like, in order to be great, you have to go to school, get your grades up. You have to lift weights. I didn't lift weights at all. You have to just put the work in and put the effort. That's the definition of a student athlete to push myself where I need to be. So I just, the little things, you know me, it turned into big things. But back in the day, it was just like just raw talent. So like you said, you went the junior college route. Can you just talk me a little bit through what that was like for you and what you had to endure during that time? No, during that time, you know, it was just a process. I used to you go to three hours, take three hours to go to school and stuff like that, wake up five o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I'm catching a bus boat in the train and stuff like that just to get where I need to be, just to get my grades up and stuff like that. And, um, you know, during that time, we were just I did that for two years, including weekends, you know. But, you know, it was just like I couldn't really get mad about it because we all was doing it. It was more than 20 of us doing it in the same type of housing and the same type of area that we was at. I lived, my dorm was in Staten Island. My school was in Manhattan. So, you know, with that being said, you just got to just trust the process. I believe that anybody, a lot of people would never done this. They would have been transferred. But when you trust a process, if you believe in something, it would be impossible to do. So I believed in it. And I still look at myself to this day and be like, I still couldn't believe I did that. So. No, that's something to be extremely proud about. And at the end of the day, you you ended up at the University of Illinois. How did that happen? Oh, yeah, with that, yeah, you know what I mean? I'm blessed to um, be in University of Illinois in the Big Ten. And see, what happened was my credits wasn't accepted to no schools at all, you know, because my school was not nationally credited. So with that being said, if any school, it was team, it was teams like, Washington, D.C., no, not Washington, D.C., Washington, Tennessee, um, you had Miami, you had a lot of schools, a lot of uh, major um, D1 schools wanted me, and they was going to give me a full scholarship from the RIP. And, you know, they was going to take me as a junior on the field, but they was going to have to make me be a freshman in class because my credit not be accepted to those um, those schools. 
So you know me, my attitude is like, I don't want to start over school again. That'll be too much, yeah. you know? Absolutely. And then on top of that, my, my eligibility for playing will be two years. And then, you know what I'm saying? So it's just like, it's ridiculous. I'm not starting over again. All this hard work that I did. So what I did was, you know, Illinois, Illinois and West Virginia were the two top schools that I went to. You know what I'm saying? I could have went to West Virginia. It didn't really matter, but it was just like, I wanted to be somewhere. I told Coach, um, it was it wasn't really a tough decision at the time because even though West Virginia was taking some of my credits, it wasn't taking the most of my credits as Illinois. And I had an attitude where it was like, listen, whoever take most of my credits, I'm going. Whatever D1 school will take the most of my credit, that's where I'm going to. And that's what happened when I went to see Bill Cubitt. Um, he was the offensive coordinator over there because he's a Philly guy as well. And that's what hit. I, who I had to add to, whoever took the most of my credits, I'm going to regardless because I'm not starting over again. It was just so much hard work that I put in for that JUCO. And now schools was, was lying to me. Schools was really lying to me saying that, like, your credits were accepted. Was that because just graduating was something that it was important to you? Oh, yeah. Graduating was a major importance because, you know, a lot of these NFL guys don't graduate still to this day. You know me. I, mean? I had the uh, NFL guys. They called me for the draft. I declined it. You know, I could have been in that big TV and stuff like that. I, I did not go because grades were so important. I wanted to get that paper. You know, I wanted to get that um, that degree first more than anything because that's most important. People got to realize that NFL does not last long. I'm pretty sure everybody knows that. The average being of NFL player is really two years. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people don't make it out of there for two years. It was three. Now it's two. Um, but with that being said, it's just like I needed, I needed that degree. I will not leave without that degree. That was my mindset. So um, I'm the only person and my family that graduated in University of Illinois, like University of Illinois in a big time, big time school. That's so awesome. that was that was really major for me. And I wanted to um, leave an example to them kids out there. Everybody could have called me and be like, why they didn't go to the draft? I declined it, you know? So it was just like, that was my major focus. And, you know, it didn't really matter because them NFL scouts, they liked it, they loved it. So here I am. That's awesome that you made graduating such an importance because it is. And like you said, the NFL doesn't last forever, and that that college degree is something you will have forever. Yeah, and plus that NFL draft, that's just nothing but camp. That's for the people. That's for fans. All that stuff that's, you know, they show who's getting picked off and all that. Oh, yeah, the major part is I couldn't – I mean, I didn't really – didn't have to have no cameras. Just now. I'm not an attentional guy. All I wanted was to see what team I was going to be at. I ain't need no cameras and stuff like that. But they made me do it, you know, because I was one of the top 50 um, NFL um, prospects that was in the draft. So I could have easily been like, got a phone call. I'm like, all right, I'll see you soon. But all that stuff, the NFL draft, stuff, that's just for cameras, fame, and stuff like that. Because you got to realize once you get picked off from a team, you still got to prove your point because – there's no guarantee. I mean, it's guaranteed. Some people, first rounds and second rounds, they're mostly guaranteed to sign that contract. All the rest of the rounds, they still trying to debate to sign you. Yeah. So You got to make that team still. Yeah, you still got to make that team. So 
So I do want to talk about the draft just a little bit because, you know, it's coming around. And like you said, you were a second-round pick coming from a junior college to a second-round pick in the NFL. That That's a huge story. That's amazing. And I know you, like you said, you know what you know now that you still had to prove your worth. But at that time, when you got drafted, did it feel like everything paid off? Was was it a sigh of relief or what was that like? It was so amazing. It felt like I felt so free. Like my soul was so free at that time when I when I got that call. Like it was just like so amazing. Like I cried and, uh, you know, I was just like it was just really amazing. I felt so lifted all the hard work that I put in, all the process that I went through. And everybody from the city applaud me for that because they know I did this stuff all by myself. I bust my ass to do the do to push myself where I need to be. And all I did was believe. And, and you know, it finally happened. And on top of that, I had my degree. So yeah. I got my degree. And once I got my degree, I got drafted. I did not know that this part was going to happen. So it was just amazing for me. I got my degree from University of Illinois. And then the next week I get drafted to to the Raiders. That was just a, a major type of situation. And plus my birthday was coming up. So <laughs> that was the best year of my life. So, Like you said, you didn't go to the draft. Did you have like a family gathering? Like what was, did you have people at the club? Oh, well, my family couldn't make it. Uh, my family... You know, they were just chilling. So, um, me at the time, I was just, you know, I wanted to be around my teammates and my coach and my coach family. Awesome. So, it was just, you know, um, I was just wanting to see hear my name get called. So, it wasn't no big of a deal. It wasn't no draft party and stuff like that. I was just waiting. They were just trying to witness, the, um, see who was going to kick me. So, I mean, when I got that phone call, people started crying from the rip. No, for okay. sure. That's an amazing moment. Yeah, for real. So, like you said, most first and second rounders, their contracts are, if not fully, but mostly guaranteed. Do you have like a first big purchase that you had? Something whether you regret or to this day you still have? First thing I I, I bought was my Range Rover. Beautiful. That was a um, supercharged. You know, I earned that, so I wouldn't mind spending my money on that. For sure. Um, the most expensive I bought my mama house. Awesome. And I bought my mom a car. So that was one of the biggest, most expenses. You know, I had to move my mom out the neighborhood. My mom had to leave the neighborhood. So I think that was a good thing to invest, you know what I mean? And plus, you know, it's more money to come. So No, for sure. Take a turn away from that. I want to just ask a couple questions. Um, you, you played for the Raiders, then you went to the Cowboys, and then you were on the Colts. And that was as recent as this past summer. And this past summer, Andrew Luck decided to retire somewhat out of nowhere. And being a part of that team, what was what was that like for you guys? Oh, when he retired, um, he – I didn't know he was going to retire. I know he was fighting off an injury, you know what I'm saying? Um, but here's the thing. When I, I just got there when I was a coach doing this whole process I was this is the year when I was hurt and I had a broken ankle and two torn MCLs and stuff like that yeah um the time the next year when we was in the playoffs that year he was still fighting his battle through injuries and stuff like that because he's just been banged up and next year um he didn't show up at training camp he was just fighting off injuries 
when you go through stuff like that, it just kills joy. People got to understand that that shit kills joy for the game. Yeah. Like, if you go through a lot of pain, it, it, don't, it makes you not want to love the game no more. Now, if he comes back, he probably will come back. You never know. He's still young. But right now, I don't think I don't think he not think about football right now. As I can say is, all I can say is he left his legacy. He did what he had to do. I'm actually proud of Andrew Luck. He he actually really stamped himself. But you know, people got to understand with these athletes. These athletes go through so much, and people witness it. All the fans they know it, but all they care about is the entertainment part. And that's just, like, it's just, like, it's crazy how everybody booed him for that and didn't have no understanding for that. And I'm, I was very disappointed when they booed him when he left. I don't know why they booed him. I know it was a shocking thing. I thought everything was going to be handy and dandy when he came back. But you people got to understand, everybody can be replaced. Yep. Me. Everybody, every every any person that you know can be replaced. Okay, cool. If Andrew Luck leaves, somebody else can step up. You know what I'm saying? I'm glad that he was he was honest about it. He didn't want to do it. Cause let's say, if, for instance, let's say if you do get hurt, like if he's still fighting his injuries and stuff like that, and come to find out, cause that year we were supposed to go to the Super Bowl. Yeah. We had Ephraim, we had Fonch, we had that. We had the year where we was Super Bowl bound, and just now, just imagine if we don't go to the Super Bowl all because Andrew Luck's injury. Because it happened before, Andrew Luck was injured, but you know everybody would have booed him. Everybody would have said like he's not this. He, we don't got time for that. He might as well just be honest with the situation. I'm glad that he did that though because. He gonna put himself first, and that was the major part about his situation. So I'm happy for him. And I agree. I think players, and I mean, just speaking to you, and which I think you do as well as as a player, you gotta put yourself first. Yeah, for real. It's just like I, I don't understand. It. I mean, if anybody that booed him, I mean, it is what it is. But we don't care. It's all about you first. You gotta do what you gotta do. You first. But I didn't expect that for the bulls and all that stuff and that was most my that was my most frustrating part about the um, the coast organization for booing him I don't know why they did it and that was just just brutally misunderstanding why like they, they still trying to figure out why they booed him and stuff like that but it's just you know some fans aren't they're, they're just they were reacting on impulse and they were upset because the quarterback for their favorite team wasn't going to play anymore and their team was going to be worse selfish yeah, reasons uh, yeah yeah but you know it's life man it's life no. people pops out of nowhere and retire every year yep. you know what I mean like everybody retires like just pops up we didn't know Luke was going to retire I was just about to say Luke Keekley just retired he did 8 years yep. you know what I'm saying we didn't know he was going to retire. That's what people got to understand. He probably been going through some stuff with his body. He can't do it no more. You know, Patrick Willis, you know? Do you think that's a new trend? Players are going to start retiring maybe before the age of 30? Yeah, why not? When you get that, when you get that money, when yeah. you get the money. The and, elite guys. Yeah, the elite guys. The elite guys, when you get the money, it's like, 
They want to change their life. Football is not, life is not all about football. People got to understand, we are human. Football, we want, we love doing what we doing, but we got stuff, we got certain stuff to do. You know, when I get older at the time, right now, I love football, you know what I mean, to the fullest, you know. But right, I'm not dying from this sport, you know. That's what everybody attitude is like, we love this sport. NFL players love this sport, but we not dying from it. We not having no slip discs and stuff like that, trying to break our spines where we can't walk. You know what I'm saying? But it's it's teams and coaches, it's coaches out there that don't take care of their players. And with that being said, when coaches don't take care of their players, players think about retirement because this is all they know. They think that this having pads every day and and not taking care of their body, like tackling and stuff like that, they think this is all they know. So what do you do when you have pounding every day, pounding every day? Yeah. You thinking about a short-term NFL career, you know? Mm-hmm. When you can have a nice program, you can have two padded practice a week and stuff like that and just, oh, this this is taking care of my body. I can You can last long. You know, players can last long. You got to know what type of teams that you go to. When, say, for instance, like, let's say if a top prospect, he's a free agent, and it's like five teams that want him, he's going to go to the team that's not going to go too hard. He, he's going to go to the team where do they take care of their body. That's for the most important part. Yeah. You want to go to the team that's that's going to give you, invest in you, pay you good, and... Um, Someone that's going to help you prolong your career. Exactly. That's what I meant. So, somewhere that's going to help you prolong your career. You have programs that don't really take care of players. And don't. this is why certain teams don't win games because they know that. They know, like, it's been top prospects. They think the money is going to, oh, yeah, we're going to pay you more than 50 mil. It looks good, but you yeah, ain't going to lose the dirt. You're not going to go to no new program. They mess up your body. They, they mess you all up and then um, come to find out they cut you off a of training camp and stuff because you just been through it all. Like, you know, man, I've seen it happen. So, No, I believe it. I believe so. it. I know, like you always tell me, football players are just football players. But when you bring a guy up like Tom Brady, it's hard to deny that he's almost – I mean, he's the best football player ever. And this past season – it was pretty cool to watch. I, you had the you you sacked him this year. Can you kind of just walk walk me through that play and what that was like for you? Oh, it was good. I sacked one of the goats. Um, I you was sacked the goat. Um, it's more quarterbacks I, I want to sack and I need to sack. You know that's my whole mindset. When I sacked him, it was just like it was a good feeling, but it was just like on to the next. It's feel like when you've done something, like you know how like say for instance like Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson got all the trophies in the world. But once he retired, he was just like, man, this stuff don't mean nothing. This is nothing. You seen that video that would happen when he had all the rings? I feel like, okay, I sacked him, you know, this and the third. It's like, all right, cool. But when I retire, it's like, okay, he was just a regular quarterback. So does, does, do all sacks feel the same? Do they, if you like, you know, you sack, say a quarterback. I ain't really worried. But see, here's the thing though. I'm worried. Like I want to sack quarterbacks, but it's like, I want to, people understand, I want to win. That one sack really don't sell, that, that stuff really don't celebrate me. I want to win, and it's, it's already proven about that. 
Everybody knows that Jahad Ward wants to win. I do anything I got to do. If coach tells me to play the edge, if coach tells me to play three technique, the nose, even goddamn safety, if he ever wanted me to play any of them type of, I'm going to do anything I got to do. It's already proven. Yeah. and when It's you, already proven. All I, all I want to do is win. And I think that's why the Ravens like you so much. Like John, John Harbaugh had the interview last year uh, where he talked about you and just how you, you've come in and you've done everything you could to build the program and help the program be better than what it was before you got there. Yeah, man. I just feel like, you know, I'll, I'll do anything to win because people got to understand. You can have the stats. I understand. Okay, applaud. Okay, boo. Um, but anyway, like I was saying, you don't you win games, you get nice things, man. So people always get a mixture. Yeah, you gonna get your stats and all that. You want all that stuff is gonna come. I believe that all that stuff is gonna come. But everybody that had a stats and all that be going to these losing programs. Yeah, you gotta maneuver. It's a fifty fifty situation. What you gonna do? If you worry about the stats so much and worry about yourself, okay, cool. That's that's cute. But most likely, you're not going to win the game or not, you know? And it always yeah. sounds better if you're introduced as Super Bowl champion Jihad Ward. Exactly. That sounds way better than, oh, he, he, that dude was just nice. He, was, he had some good stats. He was, <laughs> I want to be I want to be a Super Bowl champion. I, I, the stats is going to be there, point blank, period. But either way, I just want to be a Super Bowl champion. Everybody here, you can ask any Hall of Famer. Ask anybody. That, that's a Hall of Famer to this day. You can name a Hall of Famer that don't have no rings. The first thing, what did they say? I regret having a ring. Okay. So, they now, I, I want to be one of them guys that have a Super Bowl ring. What are the Ravens got to do to get there? All we got to do is just stay uncomfortable. We stay uncomfortable and, and have the same family brotherhood that we had and trust one another and be the mob. You know, you know our our lingo is uh, is the mob. Okay. You know, you now the Cowboys got the Hot Boys. Okay, y'all the mob. We the mob. <laughs> so with that being said, that just shows the definition. We don't care who you is. We we right at you. We right at y'all next. So that's the whole situation. I tell it every time. Everybody know what it is with me. So we the mob, man. That's cool. And, Jihad, if you have anything you want to say to the people, whether it's something you got in your personal life or just something you want them to know about you that they may not, let them have it. All I can say is, man, keep doing what you're doing, man. And don't prove nobody. Don't prove the doubt is wrong. The people that support support you and love you and want to make you grow, you prove them right because that's all that matters. I 100% agree with that, man. And also, for all you listeners out there, you can go buy official Jihad Ward merchandise at jhadi.com. That's J-H-A-D-D-Y.com. He's got shirts, short sleeve, long sleeve, some really cool stuff. His personal brand, Kings. So y'all go get that stuff, man. Jihad, I appreciate you coming on the show. That was great stuff, man. I appreciate it. All right, I'll talk to you. Kings. This past Sunday was the premiere of The Last Dance by ESPN. It's a 10-part docu-series that covers the 1997-1998 season of the Chicago Bulls, their quest for their sixth championship and their second three-peat. 
It's something that I had been looking forward to the past two years. They first started promoting this project, I think it was in 2018 when the Cavs and the Warriors were playing in the finals. I remember they dropped like a commercial and I just went ballistic. It's something that I had always wanted to know more about. Not being born in the Michael Jordan era, I feel robbed as a sports and basketball fan. I mean, quite frankly, he could possibly be argued as the best sports player ever, the best athlete to ever tow any field or court. And as a sports fan, I'm jealous that I didn't get to witness what him and those historic Bulls teams were able to accomplish. So when this docuseries was announced, I was thrilled. I couldn't even hold my excitement. And when I got word a couple months ago that the release date from that was originally planned for this summer would be pushed up to this April, it was something that I think the whole world needed. We're in a time right now where there's no live sports. There's no games to turn on. There's no games to go to. So for Michael Jordan to capitalize on an opportunity like this where he and his team and the documentary featuring him and his team were going to be at the eyes of the whole nation was simply Michael Jordan-esque. He capitalized in every situation he was ever in. And that's something that you can see already in these first two episodes of the docuseries. Something that I had really been looking forward to, just not being born in the Bulls era, was I wanted to know more about Michael Jordan. You know, these days, you have all these former retired NBA players on TNT or ESPN, and you hear from them and you see them all the time. And that's cool. I like Chuck. I like Shaq. I like Chris Webber. I like, I like all those guys. But they're not Michael Jordan. We don't know a whole lot about Michael Jordan. We don't get to hear from him that much. And we don't really have the story from his point of view. And that's something that I really look forward to with this docuseries. And I can't wait for the next eight episodes to be aired to learn more about it. But my first reaction to the first two episodes were, wow, the guy was special. It just looked like, I mean, like Larry Bird said, he looked like Jesus dressed up as a basketball player. He was doing things on the court that we don't even see today. He really had a jump shot. The man really jumped as high as he possibly could on every single jumper. And he would just float there and wait for the perfect time to release the ball when he had a clear view of the hoop. The guy would attack the lane, jump as high as he could, double, triple, pump, and just lay it in with finesse. It was just beautiful. It was poetry in motion. And in those first two episodes, really the first episode and a little bit of the second episode when they showed him playing college ball and his first season with the Bulls when they went to the playoffs as the eighth seed with like 30 wins, you could tell he was already the best player on the court. No one could guard him. No one can stay in front of him. And quite frankly, it looked like the league had never seen anybody like him before. And when I was just watching those highlights when he had what was like 54 points game one and then 63 points game two. I know everyone wants to compare Kobe and Michael. And I think that comparison is, it's not overblown and it is extremely accurate, but I think Michael in the later years of his career resembled Kobe in his, in his later years of his career when he was winning without Shaq with Powell. When I was watching Michael and those highlights, I got... Honestly, I'm, I'm going to, you know, a lot of people are going to disagree with me, but he looked a lot like Dwayne Wade, especially in young Dwayne Wade 
and especially the Dwayne Wade that beat the Mavericks in the finals when he averaged like 36 points. He was splitting double teams, getting to the hoop at will, was easily the quickest player and most athletically gifted on the court. He got to the cup whenever he needed to, and he could finish with either hand around the goal. And another thing that really stood out to me and reminded me of Dwayne Wade, more so than Kobe, and I know Kobe was a great defender, Michael could block shots. And D. Wade is one of the best shot-blocking guards to ever play. And I just, they looked the same to me. They were quicker than everybody. They could get to the hoop, finish left hand, right hand, dunk on you. And just the ability to make shots around the rim that were contested reminded me of Dwayne Wade. I think when Michael learned more about the footwork and playing in the post with the back to his basket and having to perfect the mid-range in a sense, that's when the comparisons and people would draw the likes of him playing like Kobe Bryant. But earlier, I just don't see it, and especially not in these first two episodes. But to continue on, there were just so many things that I didn't know, and I'm glad to have known. And we'll continue to learn as this show continues to go on and episodes are continued to be released. The thing, the number one thing that I was most surprised about was how bad Scottie Pippen's contract was. Seven years, 18 million. In 1991, they said he signed that deal. And at the time, the NBA wasn't in a place where it was and ultimately would be in two years. Michael Jordan set the league on fire and the league was making more money than it ever had before, which was benefiting the players and their salaries. But when Scottie Pippen signed that contract, no one really thought that would happen. And at the time you heard Scotty say it, he needed the security. He needed to know that no matter what and whether he got injured or not, he was going to receive his money. He took a seven-year deal, a fully guaranteed seven-year deal of $18 million, which made him like the 122nd highest paid player in the NBA. And to put those standards into today's NBA, the 122nd highest paid player is Andre Roberson. Just think about that for a little bit. And I hear a lot of people talking about they feel bad for Scottie Pippen. But if you watched, you saw that the owner told him he shouldn't take the deal. And when the owner is telling you that you might be selling yourself short by signing such a long-term contract, you gotta listen. I know a lot of people are banging on that agent. Who's that agent? Well, it's actually really funny. He's, he's the agent of Nick Saban and a lot of powerhouse college football coaches and head coaches. He makes the deals for all these head coaches to be paid at a higher clip than you ever could think of. So for that agent to go from getting Scottie Pippen a seven-year, $18 million deal to the likes of getting Nick Saban his deal, the guy succeeded. Just crazy to think about. There's just so many crazy things to think about in this documentary. But the thing, and really the only thing that I was disappointed with after the first two episodes was we don't really know why the fallout of that team and Phil Jackson and Michael and Scotty, what that fallout with them and Jerry Krause really was a reason of. They gave us some BS excuse that, 
all their contracts were coming to an end in 1997 and 1998 season, but I just don't buy it. There's got to be more to it. And I'm hoping in these next eight episodes, we're going to get the true reason as to why he decided to blow the team up and ultimately tell Phil before their last title run that he doesn't care if they go 82-0. He's gone. This was his last season. It just doesn't make sense to me. You just won two titles in a row, and you're talking about blowing the team up? And before those two titles, you won three more titles. So what, in seven years, you won five titles, and you're trying to rebuild? This is a situation where you just let the team play until the wheels fall off. You let them go until they can't go any further. You let them play until they lose. They not only earned that right, but as an owner and a GM, they failed those players. And they failed that team, and they failed those fans. There's no way you can tell me that that was the right thing to do after the 98 title. There's no way. I'm really looking forward to episode three and four this Sunday. It looks like they're going to talk a little bit more about Dennis Rodman and introduce him to the show and the docuseries. And we're going to get to hear his point of view and his perspective on a lot of things, which if you know anything about the Bulls and you know anything about Dennis Rodman, the guy is an absolute character. He's not afraid to say anything. He's crazy. And I just can't wait to hear his point of view of things and how he was digesting this whole last season. I'm extremely thankful for ESPN doing this documentary series. It's something that I think I and all the people and anyone that's a sports fan really needed at this time. It's something about sports that just takes you away from everything and can relieve you of all your stresses. And for a little bit, just have you relax and not have to worry about everything and just enjoy sports. And that's, what I, that's why I love it. It's my escape from reality, and it's just something that I use to help me get through my days. And now, without that being possible, this Last Dance documentary series by ESPN is something that I all think we needed. We are now joined by Jeff Cavanaugh, a broadcaster for 105.3 The Fan and G-Bag Nation. You can listen to them every Monday through Friday from 2 to 7. Jeff has been covering the Mavs, the Cowboys, and the Rangers for the past 10 years, while also studying the NFL draft extensively for the past six. Jeff is extremely knowledgeable and plugged into all Dallas sports. He's someone that I've gotten to know over the past year and someone that I look up to in the sports journalism and sports broadcast world. And lucky enough, I get to call him a friend. So, Jeff, I appreciate you coming on the show. How's it going, man? Hey, Marshall. Good to see you, sir. Or I can't see you, but it's good to talk to you. Yeah, good to hear from you. You know, I had you on today, obviously, because you are the afternoon host of the 105.3 The Fan G-Bag Nation. And you've also been studying the draft for, I saw online, about six years now. My first question would just be regarding the Cowboys in the first round. Where would you like to see them or what position would you like to see them go after? Uh, I don't believe in that. I'm captain trade down right now because of this particular draft. I'm hoping that they find a way to get out of that pick and move down and add more picks because I think this is a really top heavy draft. And I think the top 
tier of player will likely be gone when we get to 17. So I'd like to see him trade down. Uh, but that depends. Depends how the board falls. But uh, I think names like Taco Charlton and Tristan Hill happen when you look at a draft and say, hey, what position do we need to pick first? Yeah, I think that's how Taco happened. I think that's how Tristan Hill happened. Because they said, hey, this is what we need. I think free agency is for needs and the draft is for value. So when you get on the clock, as long as it's not a running back or for this team, probably a quarterback, pick your best player. If it's a receiver, it's a receiver. Don't make the mistake of leaving the best player on the board because you will regret it. Absolutely. So in a situation where the Cowboys don't trade down, what would be either the best case scenario or a spot where the Cowboys would be in a good position to pick the best player available? And if they are in that position, who would you think that would be? My best case scenario is that somehow, some way, only one cornerback is picked in the top 16 picks. So the best case scenario is that only Jeff Okuda from Ohio State, by way of South Grand Prairie, by the way, he's the only cornerback who's been picked. And then you can pick C.J. Henderson, the Florida corner, because I think for me, the cornerback group graded as a no doubt first rounder. I have Okuda graded as a this is how you cheat at the draft. One, two, kind of. A, yeah, I take him in the first or down to the early second is C.J. Henderson. Okay. And then I have seven guys as second round corners so if i lose the top two then i would just be picking from a group of guys that i see very similarly and that scares me that's the scenario where i'd much rather trade down let it sort itself out and have another dart to throw at the board so my best case is that cj henderson finds his way to 17 uh or south carolina's javon kimlaw gets to 17 and my doctors and my doctors tell me that he's going to be fine because there's some worry about a knee, there's some worry about a hip and a back with him. But that's the other one would be my doctor say, hey, he'll be fine. And that he's available at 17. Is there possibly a worst case scenario? Yes. My worst case scenario is the guys that, I'm not going to include the guys that we know will be gone, right? The guys that we know will be gone are Chase Young and Jeff Okuda and Isaiah Simmons and blah, 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 blah. Um, The worst-case scenario is that the slider is one of the offensive tackles. There's four really good, some would say five or six, offensive tackles in this class. And the Cowboys need all four of the offensive tackles at least to go (laughs) in the top 16 to try to push somebody down to them. Yeah. So my worst-case scenario is that the best player available on the board is – an offensive tackle and a wide receiver or even a quarterback and they're stuck there not picking their best player because they've decided they don't want to pick a certain position with a first round pick. So yeah, my worst worst case scenario is probably CJ Henderson's gone and Caleb on chase on's gone. The LSU pass yeah, rusher. I like him a lot. Yeah. And so the worst case scenario is you're sitting at 17 choosing between Christian Fulton and Trayvon Diggs and Grant Delpit and Xavier McKinney, a bunch of guys that I don't want to pick at 17. And I know you're a huge receiver guy. You're a big advocate of receivers. You do a lot of tape study when it comes to them. Outside of the top three guys, who are some guys that you think are going to surprise some people when they get to the NFL and possibly someone that's not going to go in day one or day two that will ultimately make the team and be a big contributor? Uh, here's my wide receiver board, CD lamb, Jerry, Judy, Henry Ruggs. That's the three you were talking about. Yeah. My fourth guy is Jalen Rager, TCU. I think that he is going Speedster. to, 
I think he's going to affect the team as a punt returner, as a receiver. I think that he's just really fun. The most underappreciated guy in this draft class to me, although he's kind of got momentum the last few weeks as the world catches up, Michael Pittman at USC is a baller. He's a baller. He's 6'4", but he moves like he's not a big guy. Like He gets open. He tracks it. He can go get it. He's got good hands. Pittman's a baller. He's my fifth wide receiver. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that I like more than the rest of the world. Maybe K.J. Hill at Ohio State. He's not big. He's not fast. He's just probably the best route runner in this class. Maybe it's Judy and then K.J. Hill. But Ohio State's K.J. Hill, I think, in the third or fourth round is going to step onto an NFL team and start and catch 70 balls next year. So he's he's my underappreciated man. But my top ten are CeeDee Lamb, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, Jalen Rager, Michael Pittman, Denzel Mims, Justin Jefferson, T. Higgins, LaVisca Chenault, Brandon Ayuk. And those are all 10 graded in the first two rounds. Yeah, it's a wide receiver heavy draft for sure. Yeah. So my next question, just you know, move on a little bit from the draft, is what the hell is going on with the Dak situation and, and what's taking so long? That is a great question that we don't really get to know the answer to. Because depending on what you read about it, that came from either Jerry and Steven or from Dak's agent. So what I believe is actually happening is Dak and his agent are, they're driving a hard bargain. Dak's, and that's their job. Dak's agent is wanting to get exactly what he wants in this deal in terms of guaranteed money, what they get annually. And the number of years. They're trying to get exactly what they want. And I think the Cowboys want more years where they will have options. Because all that matters is guaranteed, right? It's all that matters. It's the only thing that matters. Uh, And so what they want to do is give you your guaranteed money, hundred and something million dollars, whatever it is. And then still have multiple two or three years on the back end there that aren't guaranteed where they have the freedom to do whatever they want. And players don't like that. They want guaranteed money and then out of here. So I think Dak probably wants a three or four year deal. Cowboys want a five or six year deal, and they're going and they're going to argue about it. But it's still insane. They're the only team with a, a franchise quarterback that can't get a deal done. Everybody else, it gets done. We don't play these games. The only people who play these games is Washington and Kirk Cousins, and then he gets so mad at your team that he's like, "I'm out of here." Um, so they should probably get it done or draft two if he makes it seventeen. <laughs> that would be funny. Do you think that's because Jerry and Steven in the front office don't 100% believe in Dak, or is it just because the number he wants is too high? Well, I do know, based on talking to people, that Jerry multiple times during the year last year was asking his front office and his coaching staff, is this our guy? So everyone in the organization was not sold on him as of different points of last year. Gotcha. But... I mean, the dude's a – let's even look at this from a Dak hater perspective. If I'm a Dak hater and I want to – but I want to make a reasonable case for how terrible he is, then I could say he's like the 12th or 13th best quarterback in the league. That's if I'm a hater. Yeah. If I'm realistic, he's top 10, maybe top 8. And how many teams let that walk? Not, Not many. Not good None? ones. Yeah. Yeah, I'm confused by it. You've got a young guy that's gotten better every single year, and he's. it looks like he's going to continue to get better. I think they should nail him down. But I do think a number like Russell Wilson could put the Cowboys in a position where 
they can't build the roster around him to be successful. Is that is that is that something that I should think or no? Uh, I mean, the salary cap is a problem, and there's no doubt that the Cowboys wasted the last um, four years where that was supposed to be your best chance to win, and they didn't manage to do it. So once you pay your quarterback, is that going to get easier? No, especially considering that the last three years you haven't drafted very well. So the Cowboys have put themselves in a bad spot where now they're going to have to pay the quarterback. They're going to make it harder to win. They don't have the young, cheap talent on the roster that they did over the last few years. Uh, And some teams, if they were in this spot, I bet you would be looking at rebuilding. But the Cowboys won't think that way. So they're going to have to, with Jerry Jones, I mean, it's a it's a marketing thing as much as it's a football thing. they got to be competitive. So you don't let your quarterback walk. That's not the answer unless you're blowing this thing up, which they won't do. But, yeah, it's going to be harder to win. What they have to do is they have to hit a home run in the draft. They better find – you're lucky in a year to find three good players in a draft. Yeah. they better They better find four or five. So with all the rumors going around, do you buy into it? Is it just smoke? What are the chances Jamal Adams is dealt and possibly to the Cowboys during draft day or the draft weekend? I think the Jets are 100% taking calls on Jamal Adams. I think the Cowboys are 100% interested in Jamal Adams. But last year at the trade deadline, I think what they were asking for was absurd. And I don't know if it'll get any closer now. So I will say the chances... Jamal Adams' dealt are 25%, and I'll say over 50% of the time, the team he's traded to is Dallas. I think they're probably the most interested. So somewhere around 20%, 18 to 20%, (laughs) 18.6% Jamal Adams is a Cowboy. I like it. What are some of the biggest things you're expecting and Cowboy fans should be expecting from the turnover from Jason Garrett to Mike McCarthy in year one? Oh, you won't have a terrible head coach anymore. Um, Specifically, I think Jason Garrett is and was um, from an era of football where you just lined up and beat the other team because the teams he played on could, and he played that way. And when somebody got hurt, he really believed in next man up, which is the dumbest thing a coach could ever believe in. It's like, well, the next guy, you know, Chaz Green is just going to beat Tyron Smith. No, you help him. You adjust your plan based on who you have and who you don't have. Uh, I think... And McCarthy has some of his own issues that hopefully aren't going to be there anymore where he went away from things that were working for him in Green Bay and it cost him his job. So uh, I think you will no longer have an outdated head coach. And I think you will have a guy who doesn't make as many in-game mistakes. And hopefully you have a difference maker on Sunday because Jason Garrett was not that. And if he was... It was to the negative, not the positive. You've now been covering the Cowboys for 10 years. Give me your favorite Jerry Jones story. Um, uh, I guess my favorite Jerry story that involved me would be covering the Combine. Because every year at the Combine, they'll pull up the big old Jerry bus to the curb. They're outside the, uh, the arena in Indianapolis. And they'll invite on a few members of the media to talk to Jerry for hour, hour and a half. So, like, there's one guy from DallasCowboys.com. There's one guy from a TV station. There's one guy from ESPN. And then there's me. And this was probably four years ago. So, we sit on the bus and everybody asks Jerry questions. And, you know, finally he looks around everybody and says, Well, uh, 
uh, we good? And everybody's like, yeah, Jerry, we're good. And so they all stand up. He's like, nobody needs a drink or anything. And everybody's standing up and shuffling off the bus. And I asked him, I said, you got any beer? And Jerry said, well, uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And he sent his driver to the fridge and he brought out a six pack of uh, Miller Lite cans. And so I was like, well, crap. Okay. So I cracked it. And so four reporters who were getting off the bus turn right back around and sit down like I'm going to get some sort of scoop. I was like, no, I'm just taking the opportunity to get a beer from Jerry. And so, I'd never, <laughs> and so the DFW Cowboy Media sits on Jerry's bus. Jerry sits on Jerry's bus and they all just sit there and watch me drink a beer. And the next year we get on Jerry's bus. And when he says to everybody, are we good? Everybody looked at me and I said, Jerry, I said, Jerry, do you have more beer? He said, yes, I do. (laughs) And this time everybody had a beer. So yeah, I had beer with Jerry Jones and ruined the media's day. It was great. That's awesome. Well, Jeff, I appreciate you coming on, man. That was some really good stuff. Uh, If you could just let the people know where they can find your work, where they can follow you, and just go to get more info from you. YouTube.com slash Jeff Kavanaugh, 105.3 The Fan, 2 to 7, Monday through Friday on the G-Bag Nation. Um, Twitter at JC1053. Instagram at Time for Jeffrey. Twitch at Time for Jeffrey. Um, I think that's it. You play some games? You're on Twitch or what? Oh, yeah. I'm Call of Duty, bro. Yeah, I'm playing Warzone. That's awesome. Well, Jeff, I appreciate you coming on, man. We'll have to have you on again sometime soon. For sure. Love you. Thank you, Jeff. Yep, yep. We're now at the recurring segment of the day, and that is my stir of the day. That's the official name that I'm going with. And if you're new to the show, that's a topic where I'm just going to give you my opinion raw and just see how you guys react to it. It may be a little hot take-ish, but it's something that I like to do. I like to stir up the pot. I like to get people thinking. And this time, I'm just not sure what the deal is with the recent news that a lot of teams have Justin Herbert over Tua on their board. That just doesn't make sense to me. And the only way you could make sense of that is because you're scared of Tua's past injury history. But if you go back and look at those injuries, they were freak injuries. And everything you've heard, whether they may be Tua's doctors, is he's clear. He's ready to go. He'll be able to start day one. But I understand that due to the coronavirus and COVID-19, Draft prospects in the 2020 draft have been unable to meet with teams and go through physicals and be checked out by team doctors and have team doctors put their hands on these players and be comfortable in investing millions of dollars in these guys. And especially at the top of the draft, where if you miss, as a GM, you're probably going to be fired in two or three years. But with all that said, I'm taking Tua over Justin Herbert. 10 times out of 10. On paper, Herbert looks like the better prospect. 6'6", he's a little more athletic, he's got all-world arm talent, can make every single throw, doesn't need to have good feet to make good throws, which some people will say is a good thing, and some people will say is a bad thing, and mechanics need to be worked on, and at the NFL level, throws without good mechanics and good footwork 
will be problematic for the offense and the quarterback. I think when you watch Justin Herbert, you just see the prototypical quarterback. He's got the size, he's got the arm, and he's more mobile than people will give him credit for. Quite frankly, I think he's more mobile than Tua. But something that concerns me about Herbert, he played with one of the best offensive lines in the country last year at Oregon and the previous season at Oregon. Oregon these past two years has had a front that was absolutely dominant. They were great at pass blocking and even better in the run game. And the thing that scares me about that is he's not going to have that to the team he goes to, which most likely will be in the top 15 picks. Some people saying the top 10. Some people say the top seven. When you come from a place where you're used to being protected and being able to read defenses and sit on your back foot and make multiple reads, glance from sideline to sideline, when you're used to that and you go into a place like the NFL and most likely a team that picks at the top of the draft, you're not going to have that type of time. You're not going to be able to survey the field for more than three seconds. And Herbert, when you watch his film, he's very reliant on letting the ball go when the receiver is already open. He lacks anticipation. He has these throws where the guy's open and he won't throw it until the guy's wide open. And in the NFL, that's a problem. You can't do that. And that's the complete opposite of when you watch Tua. When you watch Tua, you see the guy hit his back leg and the ball is out like a dart. And maybe that's because of the offense that he played in Alabama, such a structured offense that's reliant so much on timing and routes and timing routes and throws that three-step drop, let it go, no reset, throws like that. But the guy is just his, when you watch Tua, you just see how incredible his feel for the game is, his anticipation, and his timing is pristine. And I also think Tua is a much more accurate passer. It seems like every ball that Tua threw was hitting the guy in the chest or just enough out in front to where the receiver wouldn't have to break stride, which is not the case for Justin Herbert. His ball placement, even though his completion percentage is good, his ball placement, even on completions, needs a lot of work. A lot of comparisons that I saw when I was doing my homework to Justin Herbert, which I agree with to some extent, is Josh Allen. He's not as strong of a runner as Josh Allen, but he is a very capable runner. I don't think you'll ever see him run over defensive backs and linebackers like a Josh Allen would try to do, but... He's also very mobile in Justin Herbert, and he can pick up a third and long or a second and long when the defense breaks down and the running from the quarterback is not accounted for. He also has a really, really strong arm like Josh Allen. I don't think it's as strong. I think Josh Allen might have the strongest arm in the NFL. I think it's a toss-up between him and Patty Mahomes, but I think Justin Herbert is right under them. The guy can make every single throw from the pocket on the run. He's great outside of the pocket. He's good when the play breaks down. He's a good quarterback. I think he's the third quarterback in this class. But he has a lot of work to do still. And his numbers, especially in big games at Oregon, aren't all that impressive. In the Rose Bowl this past year versus Wisconsin, where Oregon did win 28-27, Herbert just wasn't all that impressive to me. He was 14 for 20 with 138 yards and no TDs. 
He did complete the ball at a 70% clip, which is high and very successful. But when you're not able to put the ball in the air in the end zone and you throw an interception and you complete 14 passes and you're completing them at a clip of less than 10 yards per pass, that's something to be looked at. Another game that really scares me was the game versus Utah this year when Utah was rated number five in the country. Yes, Oregon did win again, but Herbert's stats are quite frankly pedestrian. This time he only completed 53% of his passes, he was 14 for 26, and had 193 yards and threw for one touchdown. I could just keep going down the list. He doesn't have a lot of games where he just completely put the team on his back. That was a team that was reliant on their O-line and being able to push people up front. I do think Herbert has a lot of talent. I do think he could be molded to be a potential franchise quarterback. I do think you can win games with him, but I think he has to go to a team that's relying on the run game. He needs a strong front. He needs an O-line that's going to protect him. And he needs a defense that's going to keep him in the games. I just don't see Justin Herbert as the guy where if you fall behind by two or three possessions earlier in the game, I just don't see him as the type of guy that's going to wheel and bring you back through the air. I just don't really see him as that type of guy. I think he's someone that can manage your offense. I think he's mature. He did four years at Oregon. He has no off-the-field problems. I think he's a guy that's going to be good in the locker room. You hear about his teammates talk about him, and no one really has anything bad to say about him. But when you're comparing him to Tua, who, in my opinion, if he wasn't hurt, him and Joe Burrow is a toss-up, it's not even close when it comes to Tua and Justin Herbert. And sadly, the more I've been watching these ESPN and NFL Network shows and listening to all these different draft podcasts, you're starting to hear more and more about how NFL teams are loving and falling in love with Justin Herbert. And some people are even saying, despite the injuries, he's better than Tua. And I don't see it. Not one bit. Tua's going to be special. Let the kid go to a team where he has some weapons. May not have to start right away can for sure clear up that hip issue, that's going to be a problem. And it's not something I think the NFL wants to see. Because if Tua goes to a team where he is put in a spot where he can be successful, that's a team that in a couple years will be competing for championships. Just about gonna wrap things up for episode three of the Stir the Pot podcast. If you've made it this far, I appreciate everybody that's tuned in. This was this was a really cool and fun episode for me. I know there was a little bit too much time from episode two to the release of episode three, but I wanted this show to be perfect and I wanted it to be on all streaming services. So you can now listen to me on Apple Music and on Spotify. So all you guys go out there and follow me on those platforms. Share the podcast. I'd really appreciate it. And let me know what you think, good or bad. Like I said in episode one, this is all about me getting reps. I'm trying to get better every single time I do an episode. So once again, I just want to shout everybody out that's listened, shared, done anything to contribute to the show, or just told me that you listened and you liked it. 
because honestly, that means a lot to me. So I appreciate everybody for tuning in. Until episode four, I'll see y'all next time. Peace. Blood, sweat, and tears, I done put a lot in. You at the top, I'ma need the top spot then. Pass the rock, half court shots popping. Bambino at the plate, I'ma have to call my shot then. Breaking news, any league that you watching, pop culture, Mr. Green got him flocking. Start a pot, start a pot, start a pot, start a pot then. Start a pot, start a pot, start a pot then.